0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church.
1: And we also would love to take time to answer questions that may come up as you're reading along with us. Maybe you're listening to us discuss different portions of the Bible uh, but we would love to field those questions as much as we can. Uh, there's two ways you can send us questions. Uh, one is an email you the email address is info at grove.church or you can direct message the Grove Church we are the face or we are the Facebook We are the Facebook in Mary'sville Washington no uh, we are the Grove Church in Washington State and you can direct message us on the, the Facebook. So we uh, would love for you to do that for us as well. We I'm looking forward to the question we have at the end of today's podcast too so a lot
0: of people don't realize that we actually are the facebook in marysville (laughs) so it's everywhere uh, else zuckerberg owns it yeah take that zuckerberg here in marysville we are the facebook (laughs) all right and sometimes you just have those moments okay i'm not perfect evan Speaking of not being perfect, Aaron, I was about to jump in and then I realized that you're actually up first this week. Yeah. So we, we mixed it up a little bit. Yeah. So get, get off
1: my my portion of the podcast.
0: Allow me no, I'm just kidding.
1: to back away from the microphone. I love it. Uh so I get to wrap up the book of Nehemiah. I know Evan introduced it last week. Uh, we've got quite a few stuff or quite a few things today this sh- this week that we are covering, I think there's four different books that we're going to want to hit. Uh, Psalms, as usual, but the, but the Book of Nehemiah. We're wrapping up today. We're hitting chapters 10 to 13, uh, and just to kind of wrap it up for us, uh, we're going to find in chapter 10 we're picking up uh, the tail end of the the covenant renewal phase of of the Book of Nehemiah. The walls have been built. Nehemiah is, is with the people, uh, with the Israelites, and beginning to read to them the law, reminding them of of the commitment. Uh, and so there were were. Praying for, they're renewing the the covenant uh, that is happening. Uh, And then uh, we see this in chapter 10, just kind of a quick segment. I'm going to take time to read all 27 verses of chapter 10. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, There's 39 verses actually, but the first 27 are a list of names of people who uh, in essence signed and sealed the covenant after it was read. So um, that'll be a fun little reading for you. I'm not gonna actually read it because uh, I don't want to struggle over names like Evan typically does. So
0: uh, Uh, shots fired, bro. I pronounce (laughs) them perfectly every time. Uh, Sure.
1: so that's the first section of chapter ten, as we're wrapping up the renewal. The again, the covenant renewal f- section, uh, verses twenty-eight to thirty-nine. You're going to see uh, that agreements been made, but the the agreements that are written and talked about are actually ones that are relevant to the issues that that uh, are happening during their time. And uh, so that's this that wraps up the uh, section that we jumped into last week, uh, chapter eleven uh, to the the first I guess first half of chapter forty or, or chapter twelve. Um, describes the the population of the city of Jerusalem and its villages, uh, priests and Levites. I love this portion in uh, chapter 11, verse one to two. I'm just gonna read real quick. It says, now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem Uh, So after the city was built, or after the walls were built, the covenant was renewed. Uh, They then started populating the city. So the leaders of the people uh, in, in Jerusalem stayed there, or leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem and said the rest of the people cast lots for one out of 10 to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city while the other nine tenths remained in their towns. Hmm. Uh, so it was almost like a lottery. Um, and casting lots was not like a, a way of chance like we would view it today, where you just kind of roll the dice and see if it works. Um, casting lots was a method of decision that they would lean on to in ancient times. Um, that's why you see the casting of lots for for Christ's clothing in the New Testament after his death. Jonah, Jonah was another one who cast lots. Um, so it's just a method of decision-making. It's not a gambling um uh, chance, a game of chance is what I think, I'm trying to say.
0: Didn't they cast lots too, to um, replace Judas with Matthias? Yep. I think, okay, there you go. Yeah. So it's, it's not a, and it's funny because I
1: remember as a kid, I used to read it as like they're casting. So they're not really prayerfully making a decision. They're just kind of like throwing the dice and seeing what sticks. Uh, I think we say in our strategy meetings every now and then we're just throwing a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. Uh, but it, no, it was a real, a strategic method to help them make decisions. Okay. Um, so that's what they did. They drew lots. I love that the other nine tenths remained in their towns, so it's like, up, oh, you didn't make the cut. Go back to your towns. Which, in case of invasion, big bummer. It's, that's it's that's very a true. real bummer. Uh, so that so they're populating the city. The priests and the Levites are getting their, you know, there's places to live and to stay and to serve. Um, then we see uh, after the population, we see the dedication of the walls. Um, this is a big deal. Like, I don't want to skim past this. I want to read the majority of this text uh, in chapter 12, verses 27 to 43 um because remember that God's people were in exile remember Nehemiah remember Ezra um his contemporary where they 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 see the city in ruin they see that the walls have been destroyed and Nehemiah is 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 broken um because a city without walls is is not a city at all it's it's a it's a ruin it it there's no population like it's just not it's like a squirrel without a nut that's one way to say it actually um so anyway so it's 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 a really incredible moment for God's people. so when, when when I read some of this, I want you, I want you just to kind of reflect on the fact like, this is this is such a huge deal. And I love that it's such a huge deal because we can see it uh, in the description of everything that's played out. Uh, and so this is what it says in chapter 12, uh, 27 to 43. It says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sent for the Levites wherever they lived and brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous dedication with thanksgiving and singing, accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres. So it was—it was a major, major deal. It was a big old concert uh, band. It was loud. It was joyful. Uh, it says the singers gathered to, from region from the region around Jerusalem from the settlements of the the Neophytes. I see. I just messed it up. Huh. How's it feel? Say Gethsemane. No. <laughs> uh, and from Beth Gilgal, uh, and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth, As, Asmaveth. Uh, for they had built settlements for themselves around Jerusalem. After the priests and Levites had purified themselves, they purified the people, the city gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up on top of the wall, and I appointed two large processions and gate that gave thanks. One went to the right on the wall, the other toward the dung gate. Uh, Hoshea, the half and half the leaders of Judah followed, along with Azariah, Ezra, Mishalom, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the priests' sons with trumpets, and Zachariah, son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah. Son of Mananiah, which is actually my little brother's middle name, by the way. Um, Son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph followed, as well as his relatives. And then just starts listing out different names. Continues on. It talks about the Thanksgiving procession. This is a massive deal. This is a massive parade. And I love this on verse 43 when it wraps up. It says, on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. And then it says, the women and children also celebrated. And Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far Away, and I just think it's such a, a a powerful moment and an incredible moment to stop and remember this work that had been accomplished. First off, I think it was 52 days for the wall to be completed, which is unheard of. It's um, a quick wall, and the and and God blessed the work, but at the same time, God also created the strategy that Nehemiah was able to have to be able to mobilize people to build this wall. Uh, but they dedicate the wall, and they come together as God's people. They are populating the city. You begin to see the life returning. And what I mean by life is, you mean you see the life of a city, you see the vibrancy, you see the the people returning, the music in the streets, the the joyful sound, um, and then they do this massive dedication because at the end of the day they realized it was God who provided for them, uh, and so they were they dedicated to the Lord, and they uh, were able to rejoice. And I just love that their their rejoicing was heard from far away. Uh, I think that was so cool uh, and such a powerful scene and moment in the Book of Nehemiah. Um, and then after this. Now that he's got all the people's attention, it's 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 funny because I actually have the – I wasn't there um, because I wouldn't go to it. But when the Seahawks won the one Super Bowl they won in
0: uh, and, and the
1: massive parade that existed with what was like 700 plus thousand people down in Seattle because you oh, were there. Yeah, I was there. Um, and I remember I remember watching highlights from the news, but like there's always this parade from a team that wins a championship and there's throngs of people and then it stops, right? And then they come to a stage and they mm-hmm. have like a presentation. So I, I almost have this picture of – of like this massive parade and celebration of dedicating the walls. Uh, And then they come to this moment and Nehemiah standing before the people. And then he said, and then the the soft way of saying it is it provides some reforms. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ne- Nehemiah then says, "Hey, there's some problems in the community. I'm going to reform, and I'm going to provide clarity on what the the, the community is supposed to look like." Um, and it starts off with the ministering offerings in the temple. He he provides clarity. He provides direction, um, and he he re-ups the integrity of the offerings being offered in the temple. Uh, it, it, then he ejects uh, an Ammonite named Tobi- Tobiah, um, and I want to read this because I think it's 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 one of those kind of crazy things that. It's easy to read this section and just kind of crank through it, but there's actually a gap in between a couple of the verses. And so it says this uh, in chapter 13, it says, at that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them, but our God turned the curse into a blessing. Uh, So stop oh no, it says this in verse three, sorry. It says, then they heard the law. When they heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel and and then stop here. Um, and so there's a moment where God remembers the Ammonite, the Moabite, Moses remembers what they did where they were not willing, uh, to support. They were not willing to help out. Um, they hired Balaam to curse them, uh, which is an incredible story in and of itself, which I know we've already worked through. Um, but then but then it says this in verse four. So this has happened. They separated the those of mixed descent from Israel. They separated them out of God's people. And then it said this in verse four. Now, before this, the priest Eliashab had been put in charge of the storerooms. Now, what's important to realize is this. What Nehemiah is not saying is before they separated those out, that Eliashab was put in charge of the storerooms. We don't have the time is uncertain here, and this was something that I thought was interesting because I i not read it until I think today when I was prepping. Uh, But they, the time being uncertain, there was a moment where even Nehemiah went back to King Artaxerxes because he was supposed to give a deadline when he'll come back. All right, he yeah. wants to, he was supposed to give a time. Hey, when will you be back? Is what he was asked. He gave a set time, and so there's a moment where he goes back, and then. It's so the now before this is most likely not before what, what the book of law had done, not before the dedication, but it was before Nehemiah came back because that's what's happening here in this moment. It says, now before this, the priest Eliashab had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was a relative of Tobiah and had prepared a large room for him where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, and the tents, tents of grain new wine and fresh oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priests. While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem, this is Nehemiah speaking, because I had to return to the king, Artaxerxes of Babylon, in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence. So there had been a duration of time where Nehemiah was no longer present with God's people as they were populating and starting to reestablish, living according to the covenant, because they at this point, remember, had renewed the covenant. Right. And so Nehemiah then comes back to find this happening. So when he gets the okay, the okay to come back from Artaxerxes, he said, then I discovered the evil that Eliashab had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the court, courts of God's house. Remember, when the law was read, when, when Nehemiah put in some reform, reformation to it, that there was a separation that should have happened. Tobiah was an Ammonite. Ammonites are not supposed to enter in the assembly of God with God's people, and so Eliashab, who's a relative of Tobiah, created space for him in the sacred places, in a, in a storeroom that was supposed to be for the tithes, the offerings of God's people, so Nehemiah comes back, and then he gets rid of, he kicks him, he ejects him, he kicks him out of the, the storehouse, and said, I discovered the evil that he had done, uh, and I was greatly displeased, and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I get this picture of like an angry girlfriend throwing all their stuff out over the balcony in the apartments and stuff like that uh, of a boyfriend or whatever, which you shouldn't be living with your boyfriend anyways. Side note. Hey, then yeah. it says, then it says verse nine, uh, I ordered that the rooms be purified and I had the articles of the house of God restored there along with the grain offering of frankincense and myrrh. And so so this is one of the things that Nehemiah had done and was working on in the in the reforms he was making, in essence, dealing with the problems in the community. Um, so that that was part of it, and it's, as a side note, Tobiah. Part of it also was he was already known to be an enemy of God's people. If you reflect back to chapter two, verse ten, you see also in chapter four, uh, I think verse seven and eight. That's where some of the the, the animosity and the enemy state, uh, enemy title of Tobiah was known. Um, and it's just a, it's just an incredible picture that ne- Nehemiah's absence had led to setbacks for God's people and in, in adhering to the law and covenant they applied to or agreed to. Um, uh, so he ejected Tobiah a couple of the things that he did. He dealt with neglect of handling the offerings. He dealt with the, with Sabbath breaking. Um, he dealt with a problem of intermarriage again. If you remember Ezra, Ezra point blank confronted God's people for intermarrying. Um, and I think it's important as well to say a quick side note about this. I, I've actually always kind of been processing and wondering, I remember as a kid, sometimes I just go back to when I'm a teenager and I read things flatly, like they're, I don't know, like they're, they're black and white. Right. The reason why God forbid, forbode, forbid, forbade, Kathy, just for you, forbid the reason why <laughs> God forbidded um, uh, the idea of intermarrying has nothing to do with mixed race. It has everything to do with worshiping of God's part of God's issue. And, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Evan, but this is as I was kind of processing and kind of reflecting on different conversations and different moments over the course of my 38 young, li- young years, young lives. Um, that a lot of the issue has to do when you intermarry, you also mix cultures and you also, and this will happen with God's people all the time. They were led astray to worship other idols. And, and so when God, like when the problem of intermarriage that Nehemiah is addressing is the drifting and the wandering away from God, Jehovah as the one true God that they worshiped.
0: Well, I think there's, yeah, I think the, like you said, it's not black and white because all throughout the early old covenant, what you're seeing is, and we, we we joke about this all the time. The number one issue with Israel is that they kept going to other gods and their whole, their whole thing was supposed to be, you are Yahweh's chosen people. But if if there was a blanket, a blank, a blanket idea uh, that it was sin, to marry someone um, from a different race or a different culture then the, the marriage of Ruth and Boaz wouldn't have been. Exactly. Um, Rahab wouldn't have been allowed to, and her family would not have been allowed to join Israel. Um, but what you see, and I think Ruth and Boaz is the best example where what Ruth does is she joins Israel and not just joins Israel, like the nation, she rejects the Moabite gods. Mm-hmm. And she said, she says, you know, your people will be my people. But right after that, she says, your God will be my God. And so I think, one of the um, and and this thing it's it's so hard to figure out with Ezra and Nehemiah what's happening here and I think some of it might be I think some of it is really good in the sense of yeah you should not be we can't be worshiping other gods again yeah we just we 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 literally just got exiled for this <laughs> people so come come on um, but on the other hand I I think there is the this precursor to what we really see happening. In the time of jesus where there is this element of racial superiority mm-hmm. that that they feel yeah and so i think that's where it gets dangerous where the the command is not necessarily to never um marry people from from different nations but it is to say like they need to become god's chosen yeah. people It's it, and, th- and that's where like you see you know solomon famously he just marries women from everywhere and they all bring back their gods and he's like yeah this is great let's build a bunch of yeah. you know temples to them as well
1: yeah well, and and what got me really thinking and it's it's funny i know this is kind of a rabbit trail uh kind of a tangent so to speak but as i like even as i was reading through it again and be reminded of the the easy way to re- read it through a black and white filter is like my grandma would have taken issue with someone inter- intermarrying from different races she would have been she would have been offended by that she would have been upset with that and i think it's easy to take a a, a, a blanket look, a, a kind of a, a non, a shallow look of scripture and say, well, God doesn't want people to intermarry. Well, there's a reason for that. And it's much bigger than, than a race. And, and you see this throughout history. You see this even like, I remember I was even influenced as a little kid at points where it was the, well, that's not allowed. Why isn't that allowed? They can't do that. I don't get it. Um, but the whole idea of, it comes back to the simple statement in the new Testament where Jesus says, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever the The reality of marriage is so soul unifying. It's a bad sentence. I'm sorry, but it's soul unifying, to the point of if you're unequally yoked, you're not going to be led and encouraging and building one another up to be everything God dreamed of you being, and it's uh, it's an imbalance. It's not you're not you're not fighting from the same place. You're not leading to the same direction. And oftentimes, the weaker of the two more strongly influences the stronger of the two. And so this whole idea of intermarriage is really incredible and really important because God's, God says it this way, I'm a jealous God, you're my people. And when you intermarry with someone who's not my people, you would drift away from me. And, and he doesn't like that. So, so Nehemiah is dealing with that as well. He's creating reforms for that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, you see the last couple of verses of the book is just a quick summary of Nehemiah reform, uh, the temple reforms that he created uh, and brought back because not only is God's people re are inhabiting the city because the walls are built. Not only have they rejoiced, dedicated the walls, they've renewed the covenant. They're establishing th- themselves as God's people living in God's city again. Um, and there's, there's recommitments to that process. And so, um, so Nehemiah wraps up the book, um, having dealt with, having led the, God's people to establish, to build the, the walls of the city of Jerusalem, to rededicate the city as a whole and populate it, as well as this is now what it looks like to live in a covenant relationship. Yep. And that's how it ends. And Nehemiah lives happily ever after. <laughs> that's
0: it. I just thought of, it was funny when you were talking, I just thought of too, speaking of uh, intermarriage, also Moses and Zipporah is another, uh, exactly. is yeah. another example. Um which it might not have been the most successful marriage great stuff of other stuff, but we, we know that it was not sinful yeah. because when Miriam questions it, you know, she yeah. gets she gets leprous. Yeah.
1: Well, and I wanna be careful because don't. again, I know it's a side tangent and I know I know it's not near, nearly as big of an issue today in twenty twenty two as it was even a big of an issue in the nineties when because I go back to my grandparents. I you know, I had a grandma who Frowned upon people intermarrying from different mm-hmm. races, from the races mixing, and so, so I know it's not as big of an issue today. It's more, more widely accepted today, but I think that there is a deeper conversation that must exist because I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm speaking a very in a very big assumption, but I'm pretty sure part of that basis for not wanting to see races intermarry from generations before me hinges and is built upon a perception of, of scripture saying don't intermarry. And, and so I think it's just important to understand context, and so that's why I kind of, as I was reading, I was like, "Man, I just I'm going to say it," and and maybe I shouldn't say
0: it, but I'm going to say it anyway. So yeah, there's um, yeah you the the scripture does not support those those racist views, and yeah. you should not be using scripture to support yeah, them for so. sure. Anyways, but yeah, that's Nehemiah
1: wraps up wraps up the temple's dedication or the building ded- walls dedication, uh, and then gets the people established in the right path.
0: Well, you know what I say, Aaron. I say enough with those Israelites living in Jerusalem. Let's talk about the Jews living in Persia. Let's talk about I don't know why I'm being fake passionate about this. Let's well, talk then about he's Esther. pointing at me like I don't want to talk about it. You know what, Aaron? That. I'm not listening to you. We're gonna talk about Esther. So
1: Oh, I know you don't listen to me.
0: That's the uh, that's the other that's the other book that we're well not the other book we're going through four today, but that's the other book in the Old Testament that we are going through today, at least in the history of it. Ezra takes place in between the return of Zerubbabel and Ezra. So if we're thinking about the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, this is all kind of a prequel to it. Um, And this is during the reign of, and we're only saying this name once because after this, we're switching to his Greek name, but I'm going to go with Ahasuerus and then he's better known as Xerxes. So, but in in the Bible... (laughs) I like the other name better. Oh yeah, we're not using it. So, and it's funny too, because I even remember like growing up and you're like hearing the story. I always heard Xerxes. I never heard the, uh, the name that I'm just not going to pronounce again, but you know, there it is. It sounds like a dinosaur. (laughs) <laughs> kind of, yeah, it does. It's the Hebrew rendering Did you of say Zerubbabel or did you skip that name? I said Zerubbabel. Yeah. Okay. You just get, that one, like I said, you just got to mutter it. And then, Zerubbabel. Yeah, Zerubbabel. Uh, so, the book of Esther is unlike most of the books of the Bible. Um, Daniel's the only other example of this, where it is entirely about Jews who never lived in Israel. And I guess actually you could say Daniel's not about that, because Daniel did live in Israel, he was taken. Um, but, you know, obviously the story of Daniel is about... Daniel, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego living in Babylon. And Esther is about Esther, Mordecai, um, and the other Jews who are living in Persia. So, these are not the ones who went back to Jerusalem. Uh, And the theme of the story is that Yahweh still loves his people, even the people who are outside of Israel. And you, you, you have to kind of, again, we always talk about, you know, take off your modern Western civilization glasses and try and look at this through the history of these people. For generations upon generations, the central, not the central, but one of the core beliefs of the Jews was that they were tied to the land of Israel. The land of Israel was the promised land. Uh, That is where the tabernacle was. Later, that's where the temple is. Uh, You had to worship in Jerusalem. Remember, like it's not just idolatry. One of the big sins committed in the books of Kings and Chronicles is that they have these high places, these other places to worship God where they're not supposed to. And so now all of a sudden, many of them have been forcibly removed. They're living in foreign lands. This is in modern day um, Iran. So if you Go to like the Persian Gulf. It's basically directly north of that, a little bit northwest. But Susa is the is the city where this is all taking place, and so they're so far away from home. They're nowhere near the temple. I mean, the temple's been destroyed, and it's them coming to grips with how do they continuously worship Yahweh in the midst of this, and then also does God's protection extend to them even while they're in this diaspora? So, which is a a, a theme that's going to be tackled by the Jewish people for. You know most of their history moving forward too. So it's it's an interesting it's an interesting book. I love the themes that it talks about. Uh, the author is anonymous. Uh, it's most commonly speculated speculated as Mordecai. So just because there's a lot of access to different, like you know he has access to the chronicles of the kings of Persia and stuff like that. Um, it would have been, it's certainly written a good chunk of time after these events took place because at the end we hear about the festival of Purim, which is set up to uh, celebrate the events of Esther. Mm-hmm. So obviously this is, wasn't, this wasn't like this just happened and they wrote it down. This has been after the festival has been around for a while. So either old man Mordecai, or maybe it's a generation or two later that's writing down the story. It, so it also doesn't mention God at all. There's, yep. It is the only book of the Bible to never mention the name of God. And it,
1: and it created a little bit of controversy uh, and it's still a moment of controversy, right? Cause mm-hmm. it doesn't do so, but yet it's still made it into the canon um and well, that that goes back to theme and and intent behind it but it's just an interesting it definitely is an interesting thought too
0: well it's it's also the only um it's the only old testament book not in the dead sea scrolls we have f- fragments of every other book of the old testament at least fragments of every other book but we don't have Esther so i was reading we're not going to get into this today listeners cuz this is frankly it's above my pay grade as well but i was reading about how there's actually theories that there's an acrostic that spells out the name of Yahweh and you would miss you miss it if you don't read it in Hebrew but apparently oh, in, yeah, in the even. book of Esther. Yeah, hmm. so I'd never heard that before, but it was like I was when I was doing research. There's a footnote, and I was like, you know, I never look at these. I'll ask Megan. She apparently can speak Hebrew. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> our, Megan is one of our coworkers. She's learning Hebrew. All right. Anyway, sorry, listeners. You don't care about all this. Let's get into the story of Esther. Chapter one introduces us to the king of Persia, who is presented as both incredibly powerful and also just a—he's a real big jerk. Yep. So agreed. Yeah. Again. If we're going on, this is our curve of the non-Israeli kings. So, you know, he's not as bad as some of the Babylonian and especially the Assyrian kings, but he's also not as good as some of the Persian kings. You know, Artaxerxes, the king during the time of Nehemiah, all around good guy for the most part. Um, Xerxes here... Just kind of a kind of a piece of work, but yep. you know we'll see. It's true. Uh, he's having a party with a bunch of his officials. It's been a few days. They're getting really drunk, and he's like, "Hey, you know it'd be really fun uh, as if my wife came over and just danced in front of everyone." That'd be and the the implication there being obviously like a a sensual dance, a seductive I guess. dance, a seductive dance of some sort. Let me show her off. Uh, yeah, exactly. So Vashti is the queen, and uh, she gets. Commanded to do this, and she's like, "Hey, yeah, no, not going to do that." And so this is where we get uh, this. There's there's also a theme in Esther where the advisors to the king not the greatest. And so this is Esther chapter one, uh, starting in verse sixteen. It says that Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only. "...against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will make it known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come." This very day, I don't know, I'm just giving this guy like a really snaky <laughs> tone. But this very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say to some, to say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. So basically, his argument is like, wow, if the if if your queen isn't gonna come and seductively dance before you our wives won't do that either we need this is a huge issue and we need to take care of this right now is kind of the Is kind of the the tone of what's going on here. So he says... Show her who's boss. Exactly. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. Let it be written amongst the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. That Vashti is never again to come before the king. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So in the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom for it is vast. All women will give husband honor to their husbands high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes and the king did as maybe proposed.
1: Sweet. Yep. So what? a So he's just like, listen, his name, his name is very snaky. So oh I love the gosh. fact you said you, you're saying a very snaky voice, a very
0: so. snaky voice. I don't, you know, you we don't need we. There's some fantasy football drama listeners going on right now. <laughs> I wasn't now. even referring to it. Oh, is that what you? Oh, I assumed that's what we were going. I've no, been, I just thought it was funny. You, called uh, you said his voice yes, was yeah. snaky. I've been accused of being a snake in our fantasy football um, league these last you've weeks. You've come to then- a- agree.
1: Sna- that you you were unintentionally snakey.
0: Ma- yeah, manslaughter snakiness is what so, I've pleaded. Anyways,
1: that doesn't matter. I just <laughs> so- <laughs> and it was funny because you said he is. I don't know why I'm giving a snakey voice. I'm like Memucan. That's like a snaky personality. Like that was that works great. So that's true. That's why I was laughing.
0: So the king king gets some horrible advice and he's like, you know what? Sounds. I'm getting some real Rhea Bohm vibes of just like getting terrible advice and be like, hey, you know what? Good idea. Let's that's do a great that. Great idea. And so in chapter two, uh, oh wait, sorry, I do want to. Talk about this. So you'll notice also Mimicam says that let it be written into the laws of the Medes and Persians so that it cannot be repealed. What if that's going to come up later? Hmm. Anyway, so in chapter two, we get introduced to our two protagonists of the story. And this is uh, Hadassah, better known as Esther, and then Mordecai. Uh, Later on, we're told that Xerxes misses Vashti, but he's unable to, you know, call her back because, well, he 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 banished her. Oh, man. Wow.
1: And let's just be honest. Esther is a much better name. Than Hadassa, so
0: that's you know that's uh, Aaron's daughter's name is Esther, by the way. Yeah, but not Hadassa. Not, Hadassah. <laughs> not Hadassah. I knew a, I knew a, where did I, uh, this isn't important. I knew a Hadassa at one point. Now I can't remember where I knew her from. Anyway, uh, well, yeah. So he, yeah, he can't undo the edict. So now it's it's stuck that way forever. I wonder if that's going to come up a third time. Probably. Hmm. Uh, So Xerxes, with the help of the same smart advisors from before, comes up with the idea of having essentially a beauty pageant to decide on the next queen. Uh, Last week, Aaron aptly called it an ancient version of The Bachelor. So, which I think is- Bachelorette. Bachelorette.
1: Yeah. Bachelors with the guy. No, it's The Bachelor
0: because he's the the guy and there's all the ladies trying to get to- Oh, you're right. My bad.
1: I stand corrected. Yes. There you go. And that's actually from my my old lead pastor in Spokane.
0: So thank you, Steve. Hey, way to go, Steve. Uh, But anyway, so- it's it's like a year-long process. Servants go throughout. So essentially what he does is he commands his servants to go into all of the neighborhoods of Susa and they call everyone out and they're just kind of picking out ladies who they find attractive and like, hey, you're going to come live with the king for a year and we're going to see how this goes for you. So that's how Esther ends up getting chosen. Uh, we are told that, sorry, to introduce them a little bit. So Mordecai is a Jew living in Susa and he's looking after his cousin, Esther. So Esther is Her parents died when we can assume that she was very young. And so she goes to live with her cousin, Mordecai, who it says kind of becomes a father to her. Um, Esther is spotted by one of the servants of the king and he's taken into Xerxes' harem. Uh, Mordecai keeps checking in on her, but he also specifically tells her to not tell anyone that she is Jewish. So this is an important point because it's going to come up. I mean, obviously it's going to come up um, a few different times. But also, again, imagine in this moment you're living in a foreign land. And it's, it's a story of how Morde- Mordecai and Esther and really all the Jews in, in Susa are wrestling through the idea of how do we maintain our identity as worshipers of Yahweh? How do we maintain our idea I- identity as the people of Israel and also live in this foreign land under the thumb of a foreign king? So it's a, it's a very complicated story that we're being told here. Um. So eventually when Xerxes first meets Esther, he loves her more than any of the other women. It's told he, it says, and he makes her the queen. So, Hey.
1: Listen, when he loves her more, in essence, he thinks she is the most attractive.
0: Yeah. I'm not going to give, I'm not going to give Xerxes a bunch of credit here. He's it's it's point blank. You're hot. You're going to be my new wife. Yep. There you go. So, and yeah, and we also don't get the sense that Esther has much of a say in this. It's kind of just that, that is what it is. So. Ah, ancient cultures. Uh, So soon after, uh, after all this is happening, but very soon after this is, it's implied to be like within like the same like month or so. uh, Mordecai discovers a plot to murder the king by two of his eunuchs. So he tells Esther who then tells Xerxes and the two men are hanged. Uh, Their names are Bicthin and Teresh. And I just remember that because it was an old Adventures in Odyssey episode that I listened to. And so their names are just like etched into my brain that, you know... I can't remember a bunch of stuff, but but I can tell you the names of the two eunuchs who tried to kill the king. Don't worry. Don't worry, listeners. I'm shaking my head at Evan. Thank you. Uh, In chapter three, we meet our final major character of the story, and this is Haman. And the crowds went, boo. Uh, Sometime, So now we've had some time pass uh, between Esther's rise to power and then the king, he has promoted Haman to chief advisor, which is, you know, that's a pretty cool gig. Um, All of the king's servants bow to Haman with the exception of Mordecai. What? And we're not exactly sure why, um, as a kid, I was kind of presented with this as, you know, this is a really righteous thing because Mordecai is not going to bow before any other person, but there's no, uh, there's no command anywhere to not do this. Like it's, it's kind of shown as just like, yeah, this is a sign of respect for someone. So either Mordecai is, you know, just has a personal dislike of Haman, uh, which, you know, Haman, not a great guy. So can't blame him there. Um, there also can be, there's some implications that maybe... The reason Mordecai isn't bowing is because Haman is specifically trying to deify himself a little bit, in which case it would be you know, appropriate to not, to not engage in that. But for whatever reason, Mordecai does not bow here. Haman is furious. And instead of wanting to just punish Mordecai, he's like, hey, you know what a reasonable response to this guy not bowing would be? the extermination of his entire people group. That's really what I want to get at right now. So Haman creates, a, he he hatches a plot to essentially have all of the Jews in the Persian empire killed. So yeah, real, you know, real arrogant guy, little bit of a little bit of an overreactor this time. Absolutely. Haman.
1: Narcissistic um, like crazy.
0: Yeah. Even if Mordecai was just being a jerk and not bowing, it's, that's what we call just escalating the conflict really quickly. Uh, Haman convinces Xerxes again, The guy, the guy just seems like he really is just, he's keen on whatever his advisors tell him and he doesn't really make smart choices. Uh, He convin Haman convinces Xerxes to sign an edict, allowing the Jews to be exterminated. And we are told that all of Susa is thrown into confusion uh, while Haman and Xerxes drink, which is I think an apt, it reminds me of Nero playing the liar (laughs) while Rome burns. It's just like Haman and Xerxes signing this being like, oh, this is awesome. Let's go party. And then everyone else is like, wait, what, what's happening right now? So that's what's going on. In chapter four, Mordecai and Esther discuss everything through messages. So they're going, they they use servants to go between. Uh, Mordecai asks Esther to intervene on the behalf of her people, which gives us this powerful scene. So Esther spoke to, I should have looked at Hathak, I'm going to call him, and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king Inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out his golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come before the king these 30 days. <coughs> and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think you're... Uh, to yourself that the king's palace, that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then, yeah, powerful statement there. Mm -hmm. I love, we're going to break it down here a little bit. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for these three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So... The, the what's happening here is Esther is saying, essentially, if you go before the king and he does not invite you before, before him, he can just kill you right yep. there. That is a law. And she's terrified because the king hasn't, ca- it says that he hasn't summoned her for 30 days. So it's been a month, but since the king has said like, hey, I'd like to see my wife. So we can assume that, you know, obviously they're going to be on pretty decent terms given how all this turns out, but they're probably, you know, the king also almost certainly has multiple wives in a harem and stuff like that. So he's, again, you know, not a great guy. Uh, and then... Mordecai's point, I think one is a really good point in that, hey, don't assume that you're going to escape just because you're in the palace. I love his second point, because even though the name of Yahweh is never mentioned in this book, that is so clearly his faith in the Lord right there, where he says the deliverance of the people will arise from somewhere else. So essentially he's saying, obviously God is not going to allow us to be completely wiped out. However, a lot of us will die if you don't step in on this. So Mordecai is clearly showing his faith there. And Esther, you know, shows her bravery. She shows her character. She says, "Nope, you're right. She's going to do this. And if, and I love that just, if I perish, I perish. So it it reminds me a little bit of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they refuse to bow down. And their whole thing is essentially, yeah, if if we, if God's going to save us, if he doesn't, we're not, we're still not going to do it. So just great bravery. I love, I love the stories of the Israelites standing up to these empires that have ruled over them. Now they're, they're really inspiring. So chapter five begins with a heart pounding scene where Esther uh, waits for the king to arrive, not knowing if she's going to live or die. Uh, Xerxes doesn't exactly have a good, I put and Xerxes doesn't have a, a good track record track record of treating his Queens. Well, so I, I don't blame her for being nervous there, um, but good news. The king is glad to see Esther and he asks her what she would like, even up to half his kingdom, which is just, that's a, that's st- a big deal. Yep. And that comes back later in, uh, later in the Bible where, uh, Another king will ask his uh, female relative of what she would like up to half his kingdom. And unlike, <laughs> Esther does not ask for the head of John the Baptist here, basically is what I'm getting at. Esther is a good Stinkin person. Herod. Oh my gosh. Speaking of the worst people in the Bible, I mean, Herod's bad, but boy, what a messed up stepdaughter he has there. Anyway, uh, we're talking about Esther here. We're not talking about the gospels. So the king is glad to see Esther and he asks her what she would like. Esther goes uh, the flies with honey route. So you've, you've heard the old saying, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. She doesn't come right out and say, hey, you know what I would like is to live. Uh, instead, what she's like, hey, you know, Lord King, it would be awesome if if you just came to a banquet that I have prepared in your honor. And Haman, you know, I love that Haman guy. You should bring him too. And so, you know, and Xerxes, if there's one thing we've learned about him in the few chapters before this is that he loves to drink and he loves to party. So you can imagine him being like, oh, sick. Yes, absolutely. Banquet sounds awesome. Uh, in between, we lit- we get a little bit of palace hijinks. This is the, definitely the comedic part of Esther. Uh, Haman decides he wants to have Mordecai hanged for disrespect. So he he's already... Plowed. He's already put in plan, put in motion his plan to have all of the Jews exterminated. He's like, you know what? I can't wait on this Mordecai guy. Uh, let's just have him. Let's have him executed. And so he commands that a giant gallows be built, and he's going to hang Mordecai from this the next day because he's, you know, he's tired of it. Uh, that night. Xerxes can't sleep, and so he has the record of his reign read to him, uh, as you, you know, as you do. Obviously, when me and Aaron can't sleep, we just have our our wives. Yeah, read. I just have my history. Yeah, Ashley just reads me my diary. What did, what did I accomplish? So yeah, tell me about all my great, all my great deeds. Uh, so
1: it's, it's actually better than
0: counting sheep. There you go. Uh, when he is reminded about that time that Mordecai saved his life, Xerxes like, oh hey, yeah, that's right. Mordecai, he found out about Bigthan and Teresh. That's cool. What did we do to honor him? And so the king said, uh, sorry. So the servant replies, oh, well, we didn't really, we didn't really do anything. There's nothing. Yeah. We didn't really honor Mordecai. And the king's like, oh man, that guy was awesome. I'd be dead if it wasn't for him. We should do something. So this is in Esther chapter six, starting in verse four. I, I love this scene so much. So he says, who is in the court? whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So obviously really humble, this Haman. Yes, very. very. Oh, my God. I just, I love it because basically Haman's going in and he's like, all right, I'm going to ask the king to hang Mordecai and just get this guy out of my life. And he goes in, the king's like, hey, Haman, buddy, what should I do if I really, really want to honor someone? And Haman's like, oh my gosh, Xerxes, you shouldn't have. And so he goes, Haman says, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let let royal robes be brought. Which the king has worn, so you know, get, get the actual, the real deal, and it's a very the horse. Snaky voice you're using too. I you know, I, I tried to give it to Haman, uh, and the horse that the king has ridden and let on those whose his royal crown is set. So basically, you should you should put this guy in robes and let him ride around the king's horse and put, his, put the crown on his head and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square in the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So he's basically saying like, I wanna be put... Basically, I want to look like the king and I want one of your most noble servants to parade me through the city and just shout out how the king loves me and how I'm worthy of honor. And Xerxes is like, oh my gosh, that is a great idea. Okay. Haman, here's the deal. There's a guy named Mordecai <laughs> and he saved my life a few years ago. I want you to go do that for him. And so I I, I love it. I get just, I want to... Of all the scenes in the Bible, not really of all the scenes, because obviously you'd want to see like all the Jesus stuff, but I would love to see the look on Haman's face when when Xerxes told him this. Just incredible. Um, so Haman has to do that. Haman dresses up Public, he publicly. On the day that he wanted to hang Mordecai, he publicly dresses him up to look like the king and then parades him around the town talking about how Mordecai is just the best and the king wants to honor him. So brilliant i would say he gets his comeuppance but he gets even more comeuppance here in a little bit but even if nothing else happened i would be content with that level of revenge for Haman. uh so finally we get back to that banquet uh when everyone is happy esther asks the king to save her from someone sorry there's a second banquet i should have i should put that in the notes so after the first banquet the king's like okay this was awesome but what what do you want like why did you come into my presence? like oh how about banquet number two electric boogaloo king. And he's like, oh, that sounds awesome. And so they go back to this. Finally, the king demands to know like, okay, what's what's not demands is a strong word, but he's like, come on, please just tell me what's going on. Uh, so Esther says, I would, I, if it pleases the king, please save my life and the life of my people, which I'm sure this is coming as a shock because Xerxes does not know that Esther is Jewish. Again, that, that, that's an important plot point. She didn't tell anybody. Also important plot point, Haman does not know. (laughs) So again, speaking of seeing looks on faces, Haman's look on Haman's face when he realized what's going on, priceless. Uh, And so the king demands to know, wait, who's, who's plotting to kill you and all of your people. And Esther goes, Haman is plotting to kill me. And again, Haman's like, oh shoot, this is not good. Uh, The king's wrath Basically, you, there's nothing that can be done to stop it at this point. Uh, and so he is looking for a way to punish Haman. It says that Haman is like begging for his life. Nothing is yeah, going to what, be done.
1: For, I forget. What did the king do? The king had to get up, like to go relieve himself or something like that. Because there was a moment where it was just Haman and Esther. And
0: she, yeah, he, he's begging. I think I, I should have written it down. The king went somewhere. I believe he went out, just stormed out in anger and then like okay. came back. But I, I, yeah. I should have written that down. That, don't, don't take that as the... the, the but nostril. yeah. So anyways,
1: the king leaves. And and then Haman's like begging Esther, and then like falls on top of her or something like
0: that. Yeah. And then more, and then the king comes back. King comes back and he sees the gallows that Haman had constructed, and he's like, "What is that for?" And the the servants go, "Oh yeah, we wanted to hang that guy Mordecai on it." And the, you know the king is like, the, "Mordecai, the guy who saved my life? Yeah." Haman hates that guy, and so the Xerxes is just like, "Okay, cool, uh, go hang him on that right now." And that is uh, that's the end of Haman. So So good job, Heyman. Oh man. Just among the most, I don't know, poetic justice, I guess is the way to put it. Heyman really gets served it and he gets it served in big old portions. Yep. Oh man. So in chapter eight, uh, we run to the issue again of the King not being able to reverse an edict that he had previously made. So he can't just say, Hey, by the way, that thing I said about it being totally cool to kill all the Jews. Yeah. He can't just undo it. Uh, but Mordecai comes up with the idea of like, Hey, well, why not just do another edict that basically says, Hey, they have the right to defend themselves and they can take revenge on whoever actually tries to attack them. So that pretty much puts it, uh, that puts the whole thing to bed. In um, chapter nine, the day comes and the Jews, essentially they go on the offensive and they destroy all of their enemies throughout the empire, including the sons of Haman. Uh, and then we see that the Feast of Purim is instituted, which is still celebrated to this day. So it's one of the holy days in uh, particularly the Orthodox Jew calendar. Mm-hmm. It's uh, so really cool. And then finally, the book of Esther finishes with these words, a really short chapter 10. And it says... I'll give him his name one more time because I've been saying Xerxes when it actually says it. But King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Which is just, I love that that line is basically, it sounds exact identical to kings where it says, as for the rest of the, what this king did, are they not written in the annals? And then Of course, these are lost to us. So cool. So they they keep saying, hey, we're not going to write it down because it's written in this other book and then we don't get the other book. So thanks for that. Uh, For Mordecai, the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So we get this idea that Mordecai is, he's kind of a Joseph figure a little bit where he becomes incredibly powerful in the, as a, as a, as someone who worships Yahweh in a foreign land. And that's, that's the end. That's the end of the story of Happy Astrid. ending. Yep. It's, yeah, it's the most, I, I was reading through a bunch of stuff and it's described as like a political thriller, which I think is a really apt huh. way to say it because it's very, you know, it's, it's very, it's, it's heavy on the court intrigue. It's heavy on the irony and the comedy. Like it reads much more um, like a thought out story than a lot of the, the books of the Bible. It's so true. Yeah. There you go. Well, before we move on to the Psalms, listeners, we do want to take a moment to say, hey, you know, if you want to help out the podcast, you could leave a five-star review, and you could do that on particularly Apple Podcasts and Spotify are the two big apps that help us out. And for the first time, Aaron, this week, there's the exact same amount of reviews on both platforms. So hey, Spotify, you caught up. They have too bad uh, you
1: can't leave a written review. That's just fun to read. So. Yeah, what are you gonna do? Um, but yeah, leave a review for us uh, on either pod or any either, either platform. We just appreciate the time. Uh, and I do just want to quickly even say uh, thank you to Kelly. I was walking through Walmart, and she was working as a, tele, as a cash register uh, person, and she said that she loves the podcast. She oh. enjoys listening to it. Uh, and we had one of our staff members for the first time listen to it this last week. Uh, so, Pam, you're great, too. So, uh, Thanks for all you who keep listening, keep downloading. Uh, I know I think you said we've reached 90,000 downloads so far. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, we're pushing towards 100. So uh, it's just a, it's just fun. I mean, so it's just fun to to see the community flourish. So uh, there are six Psalms that we're going to read this week, uh, and they're kind of in two little batches. Uh, we're going to read Psalms 13, 14, 15, and then Psalms 25, 26, and 27. Uh, so just as normal. Again, if this is your first time listening to podcasts, podcast, thanks for tuning in. Uh, what we do with Psalms here is we just kind of give you a quick overview. We don't dive into it as deeply as we do all the other books because there's so many different varieties of Psalms. Uh, and so we just kind of give a quick snapshot. So Psalm 13 uh, is an individual lament uh, regarding the circumstances where the worshiper is on the verge of despair. Uh, and that is power, uh, powers of endurance are spent. So you're going to see the Psalm written from that perspective. Uh, Psalm 14 is a community lament in which the people of God mourn the fact that humans uh, in general do not seek after God. And thus they treat God's people cruelly, which kind of sounds a little bit similar to what we face sometimes today. Uh, not nearly like they did in ancient times, but um, interesting fact: it was also it's it's almost identical to Psalm 53, um, which potentially has uh, was an alternative version of this hymn before the Psalms were put together, uh, and so they both could have been put in. But they're almost identical uh, in that filter. Um, Psalm 15 is a uh, celebration, hymn uh, celebrating the ideal worshiper of the Lord. Um, some refer to this as like entrance liturgy in essence it's like an opening script or uh, statement they would read um, and it actually present it's, it's presenting questions and answers by which the priests would examine worshipers for their qualifications to enter the holy space. Uh, so I'm going to read it real quick. it's five verses um, but this is in essence like it would it would start the worship set. it would start um, not like set as in a song set, but it would start the, the procession of worshiping and sacrifices and, and entering into the temple. Uh, and the priest would filter with these questions. It would say, "'Lord, who can dwell in your tent? "'Who can live on your holy mountain? "'The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, "'and acknowledges the truth in his heart. "'Who does not slander with his tongue, "'who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, "'who despises the one rejected by the Lord, "'but honors those who fear the Lord, "'who keeps his word, whatever the cost, "'who does not lend his silver at interest "'or take a bribe against the innocent. "'The one who does these things will never be shaken.'" Uh, and so it's just a, a really fun psalm, like the idea of, of entering in, will be accepted to enter into God's temple, uh, be accepted, into God's presence. Uh, and that's what Psalm 15 is. And that wraps, wraps up the first little trilogy there of psalms we're going to read this week. The second trilogy in 25, 26, and 27. Uh, t- psalm 25 is a lament in which the individual members of, of the worshiping assembly ask God to help And their various troubles. Um, It expresses faith and kindness, but it does not end in a confident way like most laments do. Most laments will uh, talk about a situation, ask God where he's at, express confidence in God, and will end on a note of faithfulness. It will end on a note of hope. Uh, Psalm 25 does not do that. It ends still a little bit with uncertainty. Uh, Psalm 26 uh, reflects, uh, this is a Psalm of David. So he wrote this, it reflects this, the theme of Psalms 15 and 21. Uh, and it is a cry for a vindication, uh, based upon David's righteousness and integrity. And it's, it should be noted that it was not an arrogant boast. Uh, David was not boasting arrogantly in Psalm 26. He actually was reflecting upon God's grace as the mean and enablement to live righteously. So he boasted on his righteousness based according to God's grace given to him. Um, but that's what Psalm 26 is. Uh, and then Psalm 27 is a singing psalm. Uh, in other words, it was meant to be sung uh, by a corporate people. Uh, and in essence, the idea that God, God's people have a way of not simply expressing confidence in him, but on cultivating that confidence to so the widest range of challenging life situations. So it was a song that they would sing to encourage and build up their faith. Um, in the in the in the face of difficult circumstances, uh, that's what Psalm 27 would be for, and so that's kind of where we wrap up the Psalms this week. Pretty simple; it's not like the ten or twelve that we used to do or we have done in the weeks past. But uh, those are the those are the Psalms we're going to hit this week.
0: Well, for our New Testament book this week, we are going to talk about First Timothy, Paul, Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy, um, or One Timothy, if you're in some. I think it's in some of the other English speaking countries. That's how they say it too. So, I think you're right. Yeah, no, no, but yeah. That's weird.
1: Anyway. <laughs> it's neither here nor there. All right. First Timothy. Probably one of my favorite, probably one of my favorite books it's is right. First Timothy with Paul. It's really good. Even Second Timothy, but I think I love it, the relationship that Paul has with Timothy. So
0: Well, and it kicks off this kind of unique, so you can call it the, there's a subsection of Paul's letters. So Paul's letters is Romans through Philemon. And all, all of those are letters written by Paul, possibly Hebrews, but that's more up in the air. Um. But first and second Timothy, Titus and Philemon is kind of this interesting subsection where they're not written to churches, they're written to specific people. And obviously they're written to the people who the, the na- they're named after. So Paul writes two letters to Timothy, um, at least biblical letters, we can imagine that they had a lot more correspondence than this. At least I would hope so. Yeah, 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 with how close they are. And then there's Titus and then there's Philemon. So uh, Paul and Timothy, like me and Aaron have been alluding to, uh, they have an exceptionally close relationship. Really, they are es- essentially spiritual father and son, mm-hmm. is kind of how it, Paul is mentoring Timothy. Um, he, When you're reading through Acts and then in some of the different, especially the earlier letters, you'll see that Timothy is with Paul. He's listed as one of those people. And then eventually Timothy is, uh, he becomes... I don't know, I guess a bishop is kind of what you'd call it a little bit where he's over all of the churches in a region. So not like officially, he's not like the Catholic church does not exist at this point. Um, I guess they would say differently, but you know, what we think (laughs) of as... The Roman Catholic um, we, Church. We mean no no offense. Yeah, no offense. It's just like it's what we think of as like the the Roman Catholic Church doesn't exist. So, but so the the title of bishop here isn't working. But that's essentially the role that Timothy is fulfilling, where he's in Ephesus. There's different churches, and he's appointing. Um, the, the letter calls them overseers, but we can call them pastors, essentially, at, over these churches as well. Uh, the This letter was written towards the end of Paul's life. Uh, this is while Paul is imprisoned in Rome uh, during his first imprisonment. And Tim, like I said, Timothy is leading the church in Ephesus. It's not written as late as his second letter to Timothy, which it, essentially, it seems like it's written months before he dies. So that's pretty crazy. And I believe Titus is in that... I believe Titus and 2 Timothy are, are supposed to be around the same time because I think he sends off letters to both, but don't quote me on that, listeners. I'll know for sure when we get to Titus because I didn't do research on that one this week. Uh, in chapter one, Paul introduces himself and encourages Timothy to stay in Ephesus as there is still work to be done. Um, I put that, and this this is very open-handed, just kind of conjecture, but I put that this might we might be seeing a, a small change in Paul's methods here because what Paul would do is he would go, he would plant a church, and then he would put people from that city in charge of those churches, and then he and his team would move on. So here though, he's actually encouraging Timothy to do the opposite. So, and we don't know, obviously we don't have whatever letter that Timothy had sent to Paul, but it seems like what's going on here is that Timothy is wanting to go, uh, I believe it's North to Macedonia, but he's wanting to go somewhere else. And Paul is encouraging to essentially stay and take care of some of the issues that are going on with the church. Um, and then it's, I think, I think it's good in, in one sense, because what, what do we see with most of Paul's letters? Most of them are like, hey, I left six months ago. Why are you guys already listening to false <laughs> teachers? Like, come on, like, let's let's get it together. And so having Timothy actually stay there seems to be, uh, yeah, it seems to be a pretty good idea. Uh, Paul get, then gives us this wonderful reminder of God's grace. This is starting in verse 12. It says, I thank him The, the grace of God just drips out of everything that Paul writes because yeah, he really was, he really, he really was the worst. <laughs> and then it's uh it, you know, it's not, not Manasseh levels of the worst, but he really is um, just actively persecuting the church, warring against Christ. And then God saves him and then just puts him on this incredible track to become one of the most effective missionaries of, of all time. So really cool. Uh, and chapter two, Paul urges Timothy to pray and take care of his congregation. Uh, he includes some corrections for both men and women in the church to address areas of conflict that had arisen there. So interesting chapter. In chapter three, he gives some really practical advice for who Timothy should appoint as overseers. Uh, and so I would call So he gives the list of overseers and deacons is what he calls them. I think probably a helpful way for us to look at them today is lead pastors and staff pastors is kind of how I would, I would describe them. Most churches, what we have as elders is not actually like, it's not the biblical elder or overseer. It's kind of, it's its own separate thing. Um, And then same thing with like deacons, Pro, and it, it's not a good perfect one-to-one ratio because obviously it's been 2000 years. Cultures have changed a bunch, but I think probably the best way to line it up would say, when you see overseer and elder, think lead pastor. When you're seeing deacon, think staff pastor, or even like key volunteers, I guess you could say too. Uh, but <clears throat> this is in First Timothy chapter three, and I'm just going to read through it. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons, and if they prove themselves blameless... Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household as well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is Jesus Christ. So I I love this section because this along with James 2 where it says, essentially, you know, we know that those who teach are going to be judged with the harsher standard. It does give a, it's a sobering reminder, especially for me and Aaron, who are vocational pastors. It's a sobering reminder of essentially like, what are we called yeah. um, to do the lives that we are called to lead? And I also, I guess this is just a quick aside. I was thinking while I was reading it. Um, the husband of one woman bit, I, th- I think is best understood as at the same time, because I think sometimes that can get translated to, or it can get interpreted as meaning essentially like if you get married, um... When you are younger and either a a biblical divorce or the spouse dies, if you get remarried again after that, then all of a sudden you're disqualified from pastoral leadership. I don't don't think that's the correct interpretation here. I would say it more is like in a world where there's a lot of polygamy, essentially, it's saying that, hey, you're the husband of one wife at this point.
1: Yeah. And I I even think it it kind of provides a very clear picture of what God's intent for marriage really was, um, because I think sometimes in the Old Testament, even ancient times, it gets confusing. To see and even wrestle with the idea that God approves of multiple wives, and and the reality is the standard God sets, especially for people within the church and leading within the church, and the structure of the church is be of one, be right. married to one wife. Which I think is it's really important to understand that because uh, that's a big piece to it as well.
0: Well, it's keeping in mind. Uh, I think it was Andy Stanley says this, but I, I like it a lot. But um, keep in mind the parts of the Bible that are prescriptive and descriptive, mm-hmm. and if you look at just kind of the blanket, like, wow, all these people in the Old Testament had a bunch of wives. Two things of note there. Number one, a lot of the time, as far as the law goes, it's put forward to protect widows. And so most of the remarriage that you see as far as as far as far the law goes is essentially if the husband dies in a world where it was very, very difficult for a woman to be able to provide for her children on her own, it's making a way for kinsmen redeemers and, and people like that to be able to take care of them as well. Um And then two... It never works out well. <laughs> there's true. Tr- there's, I can't. I can't think true. of. I'm trying to. Like that's a very broad statement. So I'm being careful, but I can't think of a single example of a man having multiple wives in the Old Testament, and all of those marriages being really healthy. Like it yeah. seems like it's. Sometimes one of the marriages are good, but I can't think of one where it's just great across the board. So, well, I think it's
1: hard too, though, because you're not—you don't really get a glimpse of their marriages. You just get side notes or stories about who, how many they've married. So, it makes it hard. But I think—I think realistically, I think it's—it's it's fair to say that, um, from our perspective, and from what we have can ascertain from the implications of multiple marriages or multiple wives, that it doesn't—it doesn't end up well, and there's always some kind of discord and conflict. But. Mm-hmm. Um, God didn't intend that God intended one man, one woman. So,
0: yep. There you go. And then in chapters four and five, Paul gives Timothy, it's interesting. It's basically really practical pastoral advice. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's funny cause I was thinking about some of these things do not super apply to it. Well, some of them apply to that. You kind of have to transliterate them into the, into the present. Some of them just go straight up. Like one of them is about people leaving the church and not being discouraged. That, that is very much, that is very much applicable today. It's very true. Uh, reminders to not get caught up in new theologies, but holding fast to the faith, very applicable to today. And I love Paul's language here. As a pastor, treating older men like your father, treating younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, essentially showing the respect and the um, and the deference that you would show to them. Uh, making sure that families are taking care of needs before the church steps in. This is really interesting just kind of practical advice here that Paul gives, but he says, when you have widows, essentially he says, make sure they are true widows. And mm-hmm. then he goes on to elaborate and say that, um, if you have some, if you have a widow with older children and the older children are refusing to take care of their mom, he's like, you need to go to those kids cause that's wicked. And they need to take care of their mother. And if there's no one to take care of her, then the church should do it. But it's kind of, it's, it's essentially making sure that that, that level is there. Um, and along those lines, it's making sure to help people that, uh, that can help themselves. And so he talks about how don't just automatically blanketly give away the church's money. Like what you need to do is make sure that are they, are they in true need if they can provide, they need to provide. So kind of, yeah, just kind of interesting advice there. He also says, make sure to take care of pastors of the church. So essentially making sure that they're not living in poverty. Um, and then finally, <coughs> this section here where it doesn't really apply to today, at least in the, in the modern West, this idea of the the relationship between masters and slaves and saying that, um, masters should treat their, treat their slaves as brothers and sisters in Christ, and slaves should treat their masters the same way. Um, that part doesn't necessarily apply today, as we don't have those. We don't have the master-slave relationship here in the in the modern West. Thank goodness we don't. Um, but I actually think it, it you can transliterate into employers and employees, where if you own a business and you have people working under them. Do you treat them with respect? Do you pay them a livable wage? Do you treat them like they're brothers and sisters in Christ or do you use them? And the same way, if you're an employee, do you work hard for Mm -hmm. your employer? Do you treat them with respect or are you just kind of slacking off? So I I think that's where you can actually kind of take those principles and apply them to today. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, And then finally, because I always just like reading the last words of any any book, uh, Paul ends it with this. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. which which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That would have been a good spot to end there, but he goes on just a little bit longer. <laughs> he says, "As for the rich of this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides with everything to enjoy." That's a good reminder for today. Uh, they are good to be. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And also with you. And I also love there because at the end, there's not really personal instructions, right? Yep. Because it's not about, hey, make sure that as the church you're preparing for this. It's just a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. So good stuff there. Next week, we'll talk about 2 Timothy. Spoilers, but I mean, I feel like... I feel like you, you listener, you're smart enough to know that that's what was coming <laughs> You've stuck with next. us enough. You know what's coming next. Oh, man. And I think actually I should have I should have said this at the top, but we're not reading all of 1 Timothy this week. I think we're reading like half of it, but next week is also stacked with a bunch of books. So I wanted to fit all of 1 Timothy into this week and we'll talk about 2 Timothy next week. So there you go. So you read the end of 1 Timothy, even though we're not going to read the end of 1 yep. Timothy. In a couple days on like Tuesday or something, listener, prepare to be mind blown. <laughs> He'll be like, wait a second! I've heard this before. Uh, and then finally, we did have a question come in this week, so let's go ahead and answer that. The question, on its basis, is what is okay, quote unquote, and not okay, quote unquote, to include. Or not include, those aren't quotes, uh, in a worship service. So, background to the question uh, I had guests with me one Sunday who made pointed comments about how we didn't pray for others during the service as a church body. Um, we pray for individuals who step forward or who fill in uh, request cards. So, this is describing what happens at the Grove Church. Uh, we are not a liturgically based hymn sandwich church. And while I'm personally okay, (laughs) I also I love that description. Oh, that was brilliant! Uh, And while I'm personally okay with both styles, what biblically should a church do in a worship service or gathering or whatever people want to call the thing that we do on Sunday? All right, so that's a good question. question. Yeah, so I I actually think this is a really interesting question because it's it's something that we we need to make sure we're thinking about Mm -hmm. is what are the biblically mandated things to happen during a gathering? I've kind of arrived at the point where I don't. I don't think there's a ton that is straight up commanded as every single Sunday, this needs to happen. I think what we see are examples of things that happen in the New Testament and then things that are commanded to happen, but the frequency of which is not necessarily laid down. So here, I made a quick list of common themes that we see when they're being described and then Aaron, jump in if if, you, if I'm not thinking of anything here, but it would be prayer of some sort being involved, uh, worship involving singing, which is funny because we... I think we're on a very needed kick to say that the only way that we worship is not just by singing, but when we read through the New Testament, it's very commonly bringing up uh, the singing of hymns, yeah. the singing of songs, uh, teaching or preaching, something involving scripture there, uh, communion, and then a collection of an offering are kind of the, the major things that we see throughout all of the different, um, all the different descriptions of yeah. Sunday. I, I would say that all, if, if you're doing all of those every Sunday, I think it's pretty healthy. Um, communion, obviously, some denominations aren't doing it. they some denominations, the whole service is built around the moment of communion, um or Eucharist or um, the other thing that I can't remember. There's a third thing that's often called, but it, a lot of times it's built that mass, jeez. Um, <laughs> I don't know., I couldn't think. Um a lot of times it's built around that entire that entire thing. Mm-hmm. Um sometimes it's 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 an element of the gathering. Yeah, I think those are the ones where I would say to to be healthy, your church should be doing all of those with regularity. I think baptism would be another thing. However, in the New Testament, it's not necessarily always put forward as a thing that happens um, on a Sunday gathering or during a gathering of people. It can be literally as soon as you're saved, hey, let's go to a river. And if you're, you're just baptized by a Christian, which I actually think this total side note, I think that's kind of something that we lose a little bit in modern Christianity, where a lot of times we kind of view the pastor as the one who needs to be doing all the baptizing. So the pastor of the church is going to baptize every single person who comes through. Um, And it's one thing I like that we do at at our church is if there's meaningful Christian relationships that you have, they can absolutely be the ones to baptize you. It's not biblically mandated that the, you know, I don't know what you, you know what you call it, the highest Christian officer (laughs) or whatever at the point is the one who does that. Um, but yeah, those are those are kind of the main elements, I would say. And then there's certain things that are described in the New Testament as kind of the don'ts of committing during a worship service. Um, some of those you kind of have to you have to take with a essentially it depends on how you're interpreting those passages. So are you interpreting them as saying these are specifically written to that church, or are you interpreting this as a broad, um, as a broad command to all church? But mm-hmm. there's some regulations that I I mean, I would, I would hold that some, there's some regulations on uh, how to use spiritual gifts that are put into a lot of things. I would hold that That's probably a thing that should be applied to most, to all churches. Yeah. Um, as far as that goes, there's some other things that are more, um, a little bit more, I guess, a little bit more dicey as far as like the, the exact language being used there as to whether that's a com, uh, command to that specific church for that time or whether that's a command to everyone else. So we don't need to get into necessarily all of those, but as far as what are the necessary things, I would say, yeah, it's some form of prayer. Um, some form of worship involving singing, teaching and preaching about the word, uh, communion, and then a collection of an offering are kind of the, uh, the big elements of yeah. what seemed to be involved in a Sunday gathering. Yeah,
1: no. And I, yeah. And I agree. I think that those are all, uh, really solid points. Um, I think there, I read a book years and years and years ago, um, probably back in 2011, um, called the naked gospel. Uh, and one of the things that the the author was was making a case for was um, the purpose of the church, um, and and the and the, and all throughout the New Testament, the, the church is referred to as a light. Um, in Revelation, we see this like the whole idea of being a light, the, light, the lampstand. Um, in the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle. Go with me for a second. I, I know I'm kind of rambling, but... Um, oh, I'm with you. Old Testament, there was, there was a tabernacle, and the tabernacle was set up very specifically. God had very specific orders and very specific reasons for things to be set up where they were set up. The lampstand was put inside the, ta- the, t- the tabernacle next to a, bread, a table that held the thing called the showbread. Showbread was meant to have an, uh, a symbolism and allusion to the coming Messiah. It's representative of the coming Messiah, the lampstand being placed next to the table... It's simply, simply implied, taken from this author of this book, that the church's responsibility as a lampstand was to illuminate Christ, period. Um, and the moment you take the lampstand, and he referred to it as the moment you take your platform and you highlight something different than Jesus, um, his point was politics, or you do some kind of programming, or you do some, like something on the platform that is not indicative of Jesus, of of maturity, of faith, of following Christ, that his point was you took the lampstand away from what it was originally purposed to create. Hmm. So so when I look at this, like what are the things that we should not do that are not okay, um, that when we preach anything but Jesus, I think that that's the problem. Um, I think, I, I would say this, I think gatherings, there's no biblical case for formula on, on a Sunday. And the moment we hurt, we hear, um, or we hold to a certain tradition, or we hold to a certain format, or we hold to a certain uh, method, I think we are in essence taking the lampstand and saying, you can't be anything else but this. Mm-hmm. And you're not showing Jesus as much as you should be showing Christ. that That's the purpose of the church. I say that to say, I think that, that, that the purpose of the church when we gather carries with it a deep expression and diversity. And I think that's the beauty of the body of Christ. I think that's the beauty of the the early church. They gathered in homes. They gathered in the upper room in 120. They gathered on the streets. They gathered in three. When I mean, you even preached about this last Sunday when Jesus shows up on the road to Emmaus and talks to Cleopas and some guy who we won't we don't know who he the really is. The other villain. Um, but but there that there's a gathering, and the goal of a gathering is to build, like the body of Christ, the whole idea is to edify the body, is to build the body. And the body is meant to be centered around Jesus. And so I think it's really important to understand, we can have prayer, we can have worship involving singing, we can have teaching and preaching, we can have communion, we can have a collection of an offering. And if we're not careful, and this isn't saying that you don't say this, but it's easy to take it away from Christ. Like we can mm-hmm. pray because I have my own needs and I want my needs met. And in those moments, the prayer requests and the prayer time become more about what I need, what I want versus who I'm coming to pray to. Same thing with worship songs. I mean, this is some of the, the problems you and I have I even think back to youth days, right? When we were, we were in youth ministry together and you were one of my leaders, you know, we, one of your favorite songs of all time was the, was the Hillsong song running. Um, so oh, yeah. Heavy sarcasm there. Um, but the idea and the tension there is that if we're not careful and I think this is just human tendency, we take the, we take the purpose of the church and and, and not the building, the body of Christ, and make it not about Jesus. And the goal and the purpose of a Sunday is to illuminate Christ. Mm-hmm. That's where baptism is playing, that's where communion comes into play, that's where all of these things should point back to Jesus. Um, our need for Jesus, whether I've been serving Jesus for 20 plus years of my life, which is crazy to think about, or it's someone who comes off the street and has never heard the hope of Jesus, it's all about Jesus and understanding our deep need for a savior and the fulfillment of that need, the, 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 the freedom of that need. So. Uh, it's kind of, I know kind of a weird way to answer it, a weird angle to answer, it. but I do think it's important to understand like the methods. I mean, we say this as, as the, as the Grove church, one of the code, and I think this is probably one that we stole from life church or whatever, but that like the, the message never changes, but the methods will. Right. Um, uh, and so we we'll, we, we mess with methods at times. We, we put in, I, I would say like iHeart when we did iHeart, like when we did our outreach that that was church. That was what church should be, that was worship. I think that was serving our community in a tangible hand and feet kind of manner like Jesus would. Um, and so there's just these different expressions that I think play out. But at the end of the day, the one thing we should include is making sure we're illuminating Jesus. And that's from a uh, pastor standpoint, as a pastor and a leader within this church, but it's also from a follower of Jesus standpoint. Because it is very easy, and I've done this, I can't tell you how many times, it's very easy to come into a gathering or service or whatever you call it and be distracted by what's going on to where the gathering doesn't become about Jesus. It becomes about me and my need and what I want and what Mm. I desire, even though the the pastor could be doing it. I don't come in with that heart of understanding. And I I actually remember I I referred to this in a Psalm, like one of the Psalms we hit a few weeks ago, but the whole idea of like, it's a privilege to be together as the body of Christ. Um, So I think, I mean, very deeply, I mean, I guess you can say very profoundly. To say, I think the biggest thing that is okay is keeping keeping the the, the church the main thing, the main thing, keeping Jesus central to everything. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not okay to pull it off and put it in anything else. I, and and politics is an easy one. I think politics has no place on a platform. But I think you got to speak to to relevant mm-hmm. political issues, but not from a political party standpoint. Right. So, well, I think yeah, it's, there's certain- because the gospel interacts that, the gospel impacts that, the gospel influences my voting and influences how i respond and so um so i say that very carefully not cuz i'm trying to stir the pot or rock the boat but i i just think that there's a very deep value and concern in church world when we are able and so easily to pull the the the, the focus of the church away the per- focus of gathering yeah. away from from Jesus himself so
0: right like i think uh, politics i think that the really easy filter is just like it's it's speaking to what scripture specific, specifically speaks to so talking about um the rights of the unborn i think is very appropriate talking about um the sin of racism i think is is very appropriate uh, both of those to talk about from the platform um if you're railing about like the tax structure <laughs> that you want to Oh absolutely. For. and and again i have i have a very passionate view of like how i think taxes should be structured but that's not i I'm, I should not be using yeah. my platform as a pastor yeah. to preach on that that's a very yeah. that's a that's a whole nother part of my life, I guess, is the way to put that. Well,
1: and I think, I mean, and this is probably getting into stupid weeds that we don't need to get into, um, and probably way more information on these, but I, I would even say the, the whole idea of the unborn, that's not a political issue that that's a, that's, that's a, a real life issue. Right. Well, and the, and the, the bummer is it's been hijacked by politics. This is not a political podcast, so I'm not going to jump into that, but I just think that there's like the gospel influences and impacts every bit of our lives and the church's responsibility is to keep the gospel central. And mm-hmm. it's not about a certain liturgy. It's not about a certain orthodoxy. It's not about a certain method. But it's about: Am I creating and cultivating and dis- and stewarding a gathering to keep Christ front and center? Right. And and there's expressions that there's joyful expressions of that, and there's grief, g- grief, grievous, grief, whatever, sorrowful <laughs> pictures of that, right? Expressions of that. And so I think that there's at the end of the day. Prayer is important. Worship involving singing is good, but I think you can also worship without saying a word. Right. And so even with music is a big thing, but sometimes it and so it's just really kind of I think the deepest question is like, why are why are we expressing ourselves this way? And is it to honor Jesus or not? So anyways, but that, I mean this again, I'm like I said, it's it's how far down do you want to deepen right. dive into the the deep weeds? But the,
0: la- the last thing I'll say is I love the attitude of the question where it says, Well I'm personally okay with both styles. Uh, what biblically should a church do, and that's why I think the other important thing to say is that there is not a right um, way. To oh, for do this. sure, yeah. And so I, would I think, totally agree with that, like, we're a very we're we're a very non liturgy church, liturgical. There we go, li- very non liturgical church at at the Grove. Liturgy or anemone, but Gethsemane. I, I know people. I know people who uh, just deeply love the Lord, and and their hearts are most moved in those moments of liturgy, and and the structure, yeah. and the prayer, um, and like the and, and those sort of things. And so. If, if that's if that's the way your heart is moved, that is not better or worse. Yeah. And so I think obviously like there's different churches for a reason. There's different people who uh, who are reached by different things. And I think there's different ways that those churches also reach the unchurched. Because I think there's some people where um, if they've never heard the gospel and they're coming to churches that are very non-liturgical, it makes sense to them. Yeah. And there's others where they walk into churches that are deeply liturgical and it's, it, it all of a sudden feels like, you know, they're a part of something. Yeah. And so there's there's ways that they both reach different types of people yeah. as well. And so. the problem is when you hold those so tightly saying, this is the only way. Right. right. That
1: That's where it becomes a problem. Number one, is Jesus in the center of it, like yeah. you said. And that, and that's, I think, got to be the issue. Because, um, yeah, the moment we hold on to something and say, this is the only way it can happen is the moment Jesus would point blank. His life showed you differently. He didn't heal the, a blind man the same way. He healed them different ways. Mm-hmm. So there was not a, like, this is the hard and fast rule. Uh, the hard and fast rule is I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father but through me. Boom. And so...
0: Well, on that mic drop, drop, we are going to end this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church. And this podcast has been a blessing to you, and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does. You can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week.